Hi, I'm Vanessa Morris, and I'm a proud Yorta Yorta, Jaja Rung, and Wiradjuri woman. And this is the podcast of Triple R's Banksia, a weekly show celebrating First Nations music, arts, and culture. Banksia is broadcast live on Triple R from Wurundjeri Country every Monday from midday to 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. You're listening to Banksia on 3RRR. My name is Vanessa Morrison. I'll be here up until 1pm. Thanks to Kalia and Dylan for holding it down on the grapevine over the last few hours and of course before I keep going I would like to take a moment to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the first peoples of the land in which I'm joining you from and pay my respects to elders past, present, emerging and future. I would also like to acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening in right now. Sovereignty has never ceded and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. As mentioned at the very top there, my name's Vanessa Morris and I'm a proud Yorta Yorta, Jajarung and Miradjuri woman and this is Banksia, a show which is dedicated to First Nations music, arts and culture and wherever you are listening in from, I hope that you're having a beautiful start to your Monday and today I will be joined by a couple of special guests and first up, I'll be having a chat with Wagaya and Wemba Wemba writer Susie Anderson to talk all about their book the Body Country, which is a really beautiful collection of poems spanning rural and urban settings from the personal to the universal, always bringing us back to the country that connects us all. And Susie does do writing, uh, art writing as well, and was the 2021 Black and Wright Fellowship winner as well. So I'm sure we'll talk about that and many other things. And later on in the show as well, I'll be joined by Mata Mata researcher, writer and producer Steve Kinane. And we'll be talking about the Corboro Club, which they co-wrote and co-produced. And it's a really powerful documentary, which was originally released in 1996 and it was restored by the National Film and Sound Archive and will be screened at MIF, the Melbourne International Film Festival at the Forum on the 19th of August and the documentary shines a light on the history and experiences of Aboriginal people in Perth during a post-World War II time and yeah, I feel like it definitely... Uh, can be of use in terms of educating and raising awareness of that time in Perth. Um, I know that when I watched it, I definitely learned a lot. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking more about that with Steve later on in the show. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I'm now super excited to be joined in the studio by Wagaya and Wemba Wemba writer Susie Anderson to talk all about their new book, Body, The Body Country. Firstly, Susie, thank you so much for joining me today in the studio for a yarn. Welcome to Banksia. 
Thank you. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's so lovely to have you here. And yeah, as I mentioned, so we're here to talk about your book, The Body Country. Firstly, congratulations on that release. It came out about a week ago. Um, Yeah, how does it feel to have this one out and about with people? Oh, it is, it has been an absolute whirlwind of emotions, you know, a pendulum swinging from pride and um, excitement all the way to like anxiety and nerves and wishing in the darker times that I could take it all back, but mostly the pride and excitement that it's finally ready to share with everybody Um, because we worked on it for a long time. So Mm. it's really great to have it out there. Yeah, yeah. And for those listening in as well, so The Body Country is a beautiful collection of poetry of yours. And as you mentioned, so you've been working on this one for a while. Um, Can you tell us about, I guess, yeah, the book? Yeah, so I I submitted a manuscript to the Black and White Fellowship Prize, which is Mm -hmm. run by the State Library of Queensland. I actually submitted this um, Body Country manuscript twice before submitting a third time and then being successful. So Mm. when I say it took me a long time to get there, I am not joking. It was probably, um, I think, three, four years since the first time I submitted that I was actually successful. Mm -hmm. Um, And the manuscript changed a lot in that time. I had different pieces in there. I had, um, yeah, I sort of didn't really have this direction that you read um, in the book um, as it is now, I I was sort of loosely threading together pieces that I had written over a long period of time. Mm. And then the final time I submitted, I, um, I had written this kind of lyrical essay, like a personal essay about the sensation of being off country, living away. I was living in Sydney at that time. And just this kind of way we have to carry um, – country and culture with us Mm. and um, kind of musing on the way that that feels for me um, with with my country which is in Western Victoria. So um, once I had that essay um, this this collection started to sort of take shape or something something visited me (laughs) someone Mm. and I had this idea to pair the essay with the manuscript that I had long since put in a drawer, you know, or in a folder on my laptop going, nah, that's nothing. And I think it was the essay. And also I was prompted by the, by the fellowship judges, the, um, the people who run the fellowship contacted me and said, have you looked at that manuscript again? And, and actually it was that kind of, yeah, gave me a kick up the bum to go, don't give up, Mm. look at that work again and see if there's something there. Yeah, yeah, it sounds, yeah, quite a special um, working with the Black and White Fellowship um, and them also like prompting you in revisiting the manuscript but then also that I guess submitting it a third time I think shows a real strength and, and determination in your work as a writer which I think is quite special in yeah releasing this now and sharing it with people um yeah I guess since you've I guess been sharing this so it's been out 
in public or with people in the public Mm. um, for a week now. Mm -hmm. Um, So you had an event at Readings last week as well, a launch event. Um, Yeah, how's it, I guess, that response been since releasing it and also that Readings event? Oh, well, I... Um, the readings event was a bit of a blur because I think I it's a really personal collection like Mm. it's it is about me um, you know I write quite personal poetry there's an I there's very much like my family there you know my my Aboriginal family and then my non-Aboriginal family as well so mum's in there Mm. Um, and it deals with grief you know our father died when when we were young so there's a lot of personal stuff in there and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of emotions you know, poetry is emotional anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like to think that I have taken the personal and made it universal in some way. So hopefully when people read it, they can connect and sort of um, they, there's something in there that evokes something from their own life or they can find an entry point that helps them think a different way about maybe something that happened to them. But on that day, I was thinking of all this stuff and just going, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean – my family has read my work a bit before, but this was the first time that they would sort of come together and um, and see it all in one. And it was a really proud moment. You know, I had my auntie Eleanor Burke there. Um, she, it was really, really special to have her there and sort of reading things about my dad, her brother, mm-hmm. um, and my siblings, you know, <laughs> one of my older sibling, such a troll, managed to get in a funny question at the end. So it was really like this lovely um, reflection of hopefully, yeah, be- these beautiful sad moments that we've we've grown through and we've lived through, but also the the joyful things in our life and and the the things that are strong about us and our culture and where we're from. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It sounds quite. Yeah, personal and powerful in a way as well and the name of the book as well, The Body Country and in the book you do touch on that connection between Aboriginal people and country but then also how the country continues beyond, I guess, our existence as people as well. Um, Yeah, can you tell us about, I guess, that the name to the book, The Body Country? Mm. Yeah, I sort of, it's funny because it was the working title for so long and I was like, am I going to think of anything better? But sometimes the working title is the title. You just need to trust yourself. Mm. Um, And that's kind of what was the case with this, this title. And I guess what I mean is that... I mean, it's a really felt thing for us mob, right? Like we, you know, we know where we're from. We know, well, most, some of us do. Mm-hmm. It's, it is a great privilege that I know where I am from. I know where my mob is from and I've, mm-hmm. I've grown up there. I know the sights, the smells, the sounds. Um, you know, there are still things that I'm learning about mm-hmm. culture, of course. That's a lifelong journey. But I think the idea is that, um, there are, you know, I've lived off country in my life. I live in Melbourne now, you know, I've lived in Sydney, I've lived in London. You have to have this sense of kind of a a sovereignty over yourself and Mm. knowing who you are and take that with you always. And as long as that's solid, no one can tell you anything. They Mm -hmm. can't tell you nothing because you know Mm. who you are. You take that with you in your body. And I guess I, I wanted to create try and explain that through the different pieces I hope mm-hmm. I have tried to do that but I in there's an afterword in the in the book where 
I mentioned the Canadian First Nations artist um, Rebecca Belmore. And she, um, I saw her speaking at a conference and she talked about her experience of kind of, of traveling all around the world, making artwork. Um, she's, you know, exhibited the Venice Biennale and she, um, has made work about kind of water land rights in Canada. And she was talking about, uh, I think another first nations person in the audience said how do you stay connected to culture when you you move around you travel around the world so much and she said i'm never homesick because i take my country i take my land with me and i sort of had this vision of her as like a little turtle taking her every, <laughs> taking her home with her everywhere she goes but it really resonated with me in that that way we have in australia is that if we take uh, our culture with us or we will never be homesick and no one can ever Mm-mm. take that cultural connection away from us Mm-mm. as much as they try. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, quite thinking about this book and, yeah, all of the personal reflections that you have in it and, yeah, that connection to country that we do have as Aboriginal people is quite strong and something that's quite beautiful about this book. And while, yeah, it's a bigger collection of poems as well, it's almost like there's several different collections of poems within it. For example, the chorus, which, um, yeah, there's like the different, yeah, poems about different animals, which I really love. Um, I love animals, but... (laughs) Yeah, there's pieces about emus and cockatoos and and kookaburras, for example. Um, Can you tell us about, I guess, the different chapters or collections that you have within the bigger collection of the body country? Mm, Yeah, I I guess... I worked really hard with Bianca Valentino, my mm. editor from the Black and White Fellowship, on the structure of the book. And um, going back to what I said about the essay, um, so between the sections there are these little fragments of kind of my voice musing on this idea of the body country and musing on the idea of romantic love and where you find yourself. You know, in, in relationships we often project things onto another person but actually if you really dig deep you'll find that that is not part of them it's sort of this other you know liminal space so those um threads between the sections um are one element of the collection but this the sections themselves yeah you mentioned the chorus that was um actually a whole uh, a, a suite of poems I published in the Suburban Review a few years ago mm-hmm. and they were kind of – they came as they were, this chorus of birds. And then others um, – there's the the section about kind of artworks because I like to write ekphrasis, mm. which is writing about um, artworks or artists. And then I, there's a section that's more kind of that inner world that really um, love the love poems because mm. would it be a poetry book if there were no love <laughs> poems? I don't think so. And then um, kind of this, I'm really into. Um, yoga and meditation so Mm -hmm. anyone who anyone else who's into that will know the water not the wave be the water not the wave it's like a Thich Nhat Hanh who was a Vietnamese monk who recently died um that was one of his kind of key sayings um and and that's kind of like amusing that's sort of me pulling trying to start to zoom out of um of that inner world uh and back onto country and and the fragments between them try to reflect that Mm. until you get to the end which I guess is this more um 
yeah, even further zoomed out and sort of trying to reach a resolution in territories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, for those listening in as well, so I'm joined in the studio right now by Susie Anderson and we've been talking all about their new book, The Body Country, which is yeah, a beautiful collection of poems to which while you're here right now, um, Susie, it would be really lovely to have you uh, read one for us sure. if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I would love to do that. Yeah. Maybe I'll read um, because we're down near um, the creek. Maybe I can find the one that is about Mary Creek. We're closer because I, um, <laughs> I live more on Boonarong land, so I'm like near the bay. So yeah, it's like yeah. quite nice to be here near the, near the river. Mm. Where is it? Or the creek even. There it is. So, yeah, this is from Be the Water, Not the Wave, where I was just talking about it. And I, I wrote uh, – I actually – I think it was for Emerging Writers Festival. I was asked to write a few, like, poems about water. And we – there was a few of us, um, including Hannah Donnelly, and we went on this funny little boat around the Maribyrnong River and did a reading for, like, 15 people in yeah, July, right. freezing, so <laughs> cold. Um, but, yeah, maybe I'll read, like – a couple of those from that kind of sequence. Mm. So we start in Western Sydney in Blacktown. Not much to look look at off the highway at Oakhurst, but remember the old dairy used to be out there. Now Greg Norman's bought it off the council, property developers, and Greg Norman wants to build a golf course, and what Greg wants, Greg gets. Today, a quiet circle of women down the creek, words from the reeds, Pelican across grey sky, crow in the lone tree. Speak of old ones as auntie sings music, not from this here time. Song connects way back to children from the old school. Paddock holds sorrow of parents who watched at water's edge gather again and again on this ground, be present to heal the past. Warang. Plaques etched with Darragh words on the footpath at Circular Quay trod by tourists, come back stranger, do, make, bring, speak. Well, this coast could say something too. This shoreline has seen a whole lot before whitefellas stuck a rag on a stick outside McDonald's and canoes sailed the manly fast ferry route. Barangaroo fished the harbour. She broke hubby's spear for working with Arthur Phillip. Drive you wild, that would. They put anchors on plinths as if to say, look how much space we take up now. But saltwater tide ebbs on and on, sure as ocean reflects sky. Mary. Called south to write more and read more, listen to more music, read more books, talk to no one, watch everything. Be in the cold night, escaping lips, breath turns into fog like something, and wood fires burn in little houses. Smoke rises across the rooftops, alone and far away from everything and everyone. Get up so early and sweat everything out during a long run. Ideally, sit with the melancholy. Do not run from it. Through romantic eyes, see the beautiful nothing. All is made from the fullest nothing. Air of the creek wells down to the core. 
Beautiful. And, yeah, for people listening in as well, so that was Susie Anderson reading a few poems from their new book, The Body Country, a beautiful collection of really personal and special poems of theirs, which is out now and it's been out for a week. And in the book as well, so you do speak about, in, or towards the end of it, about using Wagaya language words mm-hmm. in it as well. Um, can you tell us a bit about that and why it's important for you in using that language? Yeah, so um, in our family, our great-grandmother, um, Eleanor Jesse Stewart, she... Um, was involved in a survey of Western district languages in the 1960s and she contributed to this um, record that we have a copy of in our family. And I love this connection through the women in our family of um, the pride in, in our language, even though um, it's I don't think there are very many fluent speakers. I know there's mm-hmm. a language project going on, which mm-hmm. is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I wanted to sort of wake up some of those words through my poetry. And I think, um, using, you know, the dual language for like magpie or, um, cockatoo, kangaroo, that kind of thing is, um, what is my way of starting to integrate that into my written practice. So hopefully, hopefully it could be more, you know, I can extend that as I go on, but I was really excited to sort of start incorporating it more mm-hmm. um particularly in the in some of the pieces towards the end of the collection yeah yeah um yeah quite special to use and incorporate language words and exciting to hear about yeah a project happening to help yeah maybe uncover wagaya words that maybe have been forgotten or lost in a way um, yeah I think waking it up yeah definitely um yeah the land council out in Horsham Branjigadj and land council are very um uh, plugged into that kind of language work so there's it's underway yeah yeah and um I know that you're also you also do a lot of other kind of writing as well in addition to um the poetry writing that you do um do you have I guess anything else coming up that you can share with us now yeah well I'm I have a poem coming out in um Mianjin, the the magazine in a f- uh, in their next issue which is um, I think it's a First Nations issue being edited, mm. co-edited by Bridget Caldwell Bright and maybe Eugenia Flynn, I'm mm. pretty sure. Um, and so that's the next kind of publication coming out. And then I'm also performing because it's apparently Victorian or Poetry Month, maybe Australian <laughs> Poetry Month. Someone fact-checked me. Um and I am part of the Wheeler Centre's Poetry Gala on Thursday the 17th of August. Oh, so, that's exciting. Yeah, there'll be some great readings there if you fancy coming along. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll share information to that on the Triple R website as well. And, yeah, for those listening in as well, so I've been chatting with Susie Anderson about their book, The Body Country, um, which as a result of the work that they did through the Black and Right Fellowship uh, a couple of years ago. Um, And they also did a couple of readings as well from that book. Definitely recommend picking up a copy. Um, I'm sure it's in different bookstores Mm -hmm. or online. Yeah, most bookstores. Yeah, Susie, it's been so lovely to have you join me today on Banksia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You're listening to Banks here on 3RRR. My name is Vanessa Morris and I'm now super excited to be joined on air by Steve Kinane to talk all about the film The Corbaru Club, which was initially released in 1996 and it will be screened as part of MIF, the Melbourne International Film Festival. Firstly, Steve, thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome to Banksia. Thanks for having me from the West. Yeah, it's so great to have you here. And yeah, as I mentioned, so we're here to talk about the film The Corbury Club, which was initially uh, released in 1996 and it's been restored by the National Film and Sound Archive and being screened as part of MIF in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess how does it feel to be yeah, re-sharing this um, film for those that haven't seen it? Because it, it came out about 24 years ago, or over 20 years ago. It came out a very long time ago, that's right. Yeah. Um, so no, it feels wonderful and uh, we're really delighted that the NFSA, quite out of the blue, just decided to choose Coolbury. Yeah. Um, it was shot in 95, screened in 96 on the ABC to an audience of about a million uh, did uh, cinema release because, of course, back in the day we used to shoot it on 16mm. Yeah. Uh, Roger Scholes was our director. My co-writer was Lara Marsh and our producer was Penny Robbins. And, um, yeah, look, it it, uh, it did well, won a Human Rights Award. It's been screening on NITV here and there. But, um, you know, over time these things do degrade. So it's wonderful that the NFSA have done a, a full restoration and we're able to share it with live audiences again. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, really exciting that it's being reshared. Um, yeah, it sounds like it's obviously been shared occasionally since it first came out um, in '96, um, and it's a really powerful film as well that I guess shines a light on a history that maybe not many people are that familiar with. Um, yeah, the experiences of Aboriginal people in Perth um, in that post. World War Two time. Um, in terms of, I guess, yeah, kind of working on this piece or the lead up to working on it and doing all the research and everything. Yeah, how did that kind of come about for you? Well, um, look, uh, for, for for many years before, Lauren Marsh and myself have been doing an oral history project, and we'd been interviewing a lot of community members about, uh, in particular, mainly people taken away from country in the north. So I'm from the Kimberley. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were interviewing people from all over who'd been taken away to places like the Moriva Native Settlement, um, uh, men and women, their lives being sent out, you know, under the Act, working as domestic servants or farm labourers. Um, and but generally, after we'd discussed, you know, some pretty harrowing aspects of their lives uh, and that it affected our community, we people would invariably talk also about the Coolbaroo League mm-hmm. and the Coolbaroo dances. Now, my mum had gone there, uh, my nana, um, lots of aunties and uncles, some of them sung there. And um, I must admit, it was, it was something we grew up knowing about, but not something mm-hmm. we'd really whose story had really been told. So so that's what sparked us to then um, to drill down into the archives, but also to go and interview, you know, 30-plus people who were, you know, still alive who, who had attended at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, a really, yeah, great film of capturing this, I guess, history um, and sharing it 
and yeah, for those listening in as well. So yeah, the Coolbaroo Club um, existed from 1946 to 1960. So it did go for a long period of time. Um, and yeah, the league as well, where yeah, they yeah had a newspaper and was a political organisation uh, advocating for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. Um, quite yeah, powerful. Um, yeah, can you tell us more about I guess that. Uh, the league and also the club. Oh, absolutely, and and even though it's focused, of course, on Perth, um, you know there were similar um, uh, clubs and similar venues that you know uh, started up around the country because mm. you know right right nationally, but within under the states under the former colonial regimes, you know everyone was in some way in that period under an act. Mm-hmm. Um, in WA, it was the uh, Native Administration Act, which came off the old 1905 Act, and it controlled almost every aspect of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the city. Uh, where when Coolbury was started, of course, it was a prohibited area from 1927 through to 1954. And so when the league first started up, they had to make sure it occurred in Aboriginal East Perth on the outskirts of the prohibited area, otherwise they'd get shut down pretty quickly. Um, so it was there was no other place other than in people's homes, um, in some of the slums or those few people who had houses. People used to gather, like my nana's house, play cards, play um, uh, piano, accordion, harmonica, sing, um, and you know, and then there was like um, still serious cultural business that took place on reserves out in the wheat belt and uh, in other other towns in the regions. But by and large, most people in the city lived on reserves or in camps out on the railway line, uh, sort of out of sight and out of mind. And there was no way for people to come together mm. as a people. And so, the Coolbaroo League, when it was first started um, and initially called the Coolbaroo Club. Um, was was to create that kind of a place to to argue for ecology sorry for equality um, to to seek um, both civil rights political rights but also to just create a place where the community could flourish where people could come together as a people yeah yeah um, yeah su- such an important club or league um, for people to connect where it sounds like yeah obviously they weren't able to and yeah watching the film and learning about yeah, the curfews and all of these just rules and restrictions that were on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at that time. Um, and, yeah, I guess Perth is an example, like you were mentioning, like these kinds of places existed in other parts of the country as well, whereas, yeah, I guess the Coolbaroo Club film, um, yeah, I guess kind of provides that history um, in a film as such rather than something that maybe people have to read about or dig around for, um, which I think is quite amazing with this film and... Yeah, with um, since I guess when it first came out, and you're mentioning at the start of our chat as well that this film uh, received a human rights re- award. Um, yeah, how was that response to it when it first came out, and then I guess over the years since? I think at the time in the '90s, um, to a degree, people we you know we'd been focusing on native title post '92. Um, there was a real focus in particular on law and culture, which is appropriate, but to an extent, history about Aboriginal political movements, um, you know, the civil rights movements prior to 67 had had maybe um, become less uh, prominent at that particular time. Mm-hmm. Um, some people had actually written off the league because basically it was people coming together, performing African-American songs, um, dressing up to the nines, you know, pl- having ballroom dancing and so on. Uh, some uh, wadjalas or some... Uh, 
non-Aboriginal people had written about it as an assimilatory organisation, but it was far from the truth. So, so we wanted to show also that people were there organising politically, supporting each other, um, looking at issues of land rights, deaths in custody, housing. Uh, and they actually, as a, a group, would um, uh, gather in Parliament at any point when any legislation discussing Aboriginal people um, was happening um, to make sure that there were black faces in Parliament watching parliamentarians when they were discussing Aboriginal issues. So in, in that sense, I think what we were really hoping to achieve at that time was just to... Um, tell the stories of the individuals to give voice to, you know, those elders whose stories we'd grown up, you know, hearing, but also to to really recapture a sense of the vibrancy of that group um, that did so much in that period from 1946 in the post-war era up until the early 60s and then kind of transformed into groups like the Aboriginal Advancement Council, which then focused on things like the 67 referendum. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, such a important time um, and watching this as well and also, yeah, hearing the stories that's captured or the personal experiences that are captured in the film um, and having them, yeah, tell it how it is from their perspective, um, some really, yeah, interesting personal stories and, yeah, towards the end you can see, yeah, quite emotion um, which is quite powerful for some of the individuals that are captured in that, um, yeah, how was it, I guess, in terms of capturing those personal stories and telling that bigger story of the Coolbaroo Club? Um, yeah, how was it, I guess, in terms of weaving that all together and, yeah, those experiences? Because, yeah, it is quite a really important time and quite personal for some people. Yeah, that's true. And I, I suppose because um, within our community we'd known many of these stories and so we'd known, we also knew, you know, who was appropriate to talk for East Perth and who was appropriate to talk about the league, people who'd been involved and things like that. Um, you know, who would be the best person to talk for being removed to more of a native settlement, things like that. So in that sense we did a lot of wider interviews and then once we'd sort of come down to a, a group of about ten, we discussed that with everyone else and they agreed, yes, these are the right ten people because you couldn't have, you know, too many witness accounts. Uh, and we really wanted it to have a strong narrative. Um, it was largely drama. Um, Roger Scholes was the director and, and came to do that. And uh, we also had, a, and being sung by Lois Olney, um, who I heard just a minute ago speaking um, as well in regard to the um, uh, Songs for Freedom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for people listening in as well, so I've been having a conversation with Steve Kinane and we've been talking about the film The Coolbaroo Club, which is being screened at the Melbourne International Film Festival in a couple of weeks at the Forum. Um, the film originally came out in 1996 um, and captures, yeah, a post-war time for Aboriginal people in Perth um, through the club, which provided a really safe space for people to come together and connect with community because it's it, they weren't able to otherwise which yeah it's such such an important time and yeah Steve it's been really great to chat with you today um yeah how does it feel to yeah I guess getting ready to come down to Melbourne for this screening oh look wonderful I'll, yeah. I'll be over there on the 19th it's screening at MIF on the um on the 19th at 1:45. so anyone can you know purchase tickets come along see it in its glory uh then we'll have a Q&A afterwards with mm -hmm. a, a number of us who are involved in the production 
And um, yeah, really looking forward to having a chat with audience members, but but also for people getting a chance to to reconnect with this history. Um, and I think at, at this important time, with what we're considering as a nation as well, to to look at the long journey that our elders have um, generated for us um, to arrive at where we're at, so to get an understanding of those foundations through stories like the Coolbury Club. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I'll put up more information to the film and also yeah the Q and A event after it as well um, for those listening in on the Triple R website later as well. And, yeah, Steve, is there anything else that you want to tell us about the Coolberry Club for now? Or? I think the main thing I'd want to share is that it's, it, you know, as you said, it's kind of surprising something that we made so long ago is, is you know, is getting a screening. It's, it's wonderful. Um, history is incredibly important and each generation comes you know, needing to understand, you know, what has happened in the past and, and listening to those witness accounts. So for me, it's wonderful that all those elders, many of whom, pretty much almost all of them who have passed away since, uh, are having their voices heard because that's why they shared their stories with us. So it's it's wonderful that people will get a sense of the strength of, of those people who created the league, mm-hmm. um, but also just, you know, the warmth and the, the sense of community that, that Coolbury fostered. I think we need to hear more about that Um, these days and so it's wonderful to see you know a film like this being able to be shared with wider audiences yeah 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 I know watching it yeah I felt like it's definitely something that I feel like future generations would probably benefit from watching as well because it's a time a moment in time that you know it's history that I feel is quite important to know and be aware of because yeah, I feel like quite often people that aren't really that familiar with that kind of experience um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, whether that's in Perth or just anywhere across the country as well. So, yeah, I do feel like the Coolberry Club film is quite important. And so, yeah, it's really amazing to see it yeah, being reshared through the Melbourne International Film Festival in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, such a powerful one. Um, yeah, and thanks so much for joining me today, Steve, and talking all about it as well. And, yeah, and share, and the film as well. I just think it's so powerful. But, yeah, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for your interest and for sharing it with your audiences. Thank you. You're listening to Banks here on 3RRR. My name is Vanessa Morris and that's about it for the show. I was lucky to be joined by a couple of special guests and earlier on I had Wagaya and Wemba Wemba writer Susie Anderson. We spoke all about their book, the Body Country, and I just had a chat with Steve Kinane to talk about the film The Coolbury Club, which they wrote and co-produced, and it is screening as part of Myth in a couple of weeks. I'll put up more information to those on the Triple R website as well and also have an online giveaway for Triple R subscribers, and that's for the No Fixed Address show on Friday, August 11th, and... And, yeah, up next is Zero G, and I'll see you back on the Triple R Airways next week. Until then, I hope you have a beautiful week, and, yeah, I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Banksia, a weekly show celebrating First Nations music, arts and culture. Banksia is broadcast live on Triple R from Wurundjeri Country each and every Monday from midday till 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au or follow Banksia on Instagram at Banksia RRR.